The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and welcome to another installment of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. As you may know, if you've been following the program over the past few weeks, we are dealing with uh, practical applications of archaeology to 20th and, in fact, 21st century situations. In many cases, unfortunately, because of the state of the world, we are dealing with disaster archaeology and the applications of archaeology in light of disasters and how the methods and actual objectives of archaeology have changed in the past few years and will continue to change in the past few years to accommodate changing situations on the ground and more applicable and applied venues for using archaeological techniques and strategies. One of the pioneers in this field is my next guest and uh, my, my featured guest for this program. That is Dr. Michael T. Trimble of, uh, the, of uh, the United States Army Corps of Engineers, St. Louis Branch. Sonny Trimble has been a pioneer in archaeology for ever since he basically started his career, which is uh, effectively 30, 35 years ago. Dr. Trimble, as I said, is in charge of archaeological programs for the Corps of Engineers in St. Louis, and I am sure he will be giving you some information about that. But for this particular program, we would like to discuss with Dr. Trimble his role in a revolutionary uh, program that he initiated, and that is specifically the forensic excavations at, uh, in, in, uh, in Iraq in conjunction with the U- U.S. Act- actions in Iraq between 2003 and 2008. Uh, Dr. Trimble, as I said before, is in charge of archaeological programs for the uh, Department of Defense, St. Louis Army Corps of Engineer, uh, di- uh, St. Louis Division. And uh, Dr. Trimble is now engaged in the Veterans Curation Project, a program that we had a few months ago in which he has designed a program that put returning veterans from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to work on 
uh, museum creation and specifically on projects that related to uh, the massive amounts of archaeological findings and artifacts that are stored in museums and which have really had no opportunities, either funding or timelines for uh, getting these analyses of the artifacts that were collected in old excavations sorted. And what uh, Dr. Trimble's program did was to effectively create a marriage between um, returning veterans and uh, the museums and the repositories for artifacts and brought them together and got a, a significant amount of money from uh, the Obama government during the uh, reconstruction activity in the wake of the recession and put these individuals to work. However, today we're going to talk about Dr. Trimble's involvement in the Iraq project and specifically in the mass graves excavations that ultimately led to the trial and conviction of Saddam Hussein. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program Dr. Michael Trimble. Sonny, welcome. Thanks. As a pioneer, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> there you go. Okay, we can get into that a little bit later anyway. But Sonny, give us some background on the motives and the initial developments that led to your design creation and implementation of the RCLO project and the mass graves excavations in Iraq, if you would. Okay, you know, um, I think how it happened, I mean, you'd have to go to the Department of Defense to really find out, but I think how it happened is the way things normally happen uh, with the military, uh, is that back in the early 90s, um, our office uh, did a lot of assistance uh, to uh, what's called JPAC, uh, uh, or back then was called SILHI, the Central Identification Lab in Hawaii. And so we, uh, since we had a number of specialists here uh, that were forensic people along with archaeologists, um, they had asked us to actually uh, supplement their team. They, they were very short on their team in the early days uh, of recovering people, POW and MIAs, from uh, Southeast Asia. So we put together, geez, we must have had 15 or 20 guys, um, men and women, actually, uh, that would rotate over to Hawaii and then be flown over to Southeast Asia. So we had almost six and a half years of, of experience uh, doing that forensic work. Uh, Tell us not, a little bit about that work. Uh, what was involved in Cell High? Because we well, had that a work. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that work uh, involved then and involves now uh, a group of specialists that are headquartered uh, at Hickam Field uh, in Hawaii, at Pearl Harbor. And uh, the idea was it started uh, in the early '80s, but really got started in a, in a very serious way uh, in the late '80s. And we joined, I think, '92 or '93. Um, the United States government decided they wanted to return all of uh, our war dead that uh, were left on, on the battlefield. And these are primarily, um, uh, you know, airmen, uh, pilots. Uh, not many uh, ground uh, troops were, were left behind, some. But I'd say probably 85 to 90 percent are, are from aircraft uh, crashes, which happened you know, behind enemy, enemy lines during uh, the conflict, and we, we couldn't get to those individuals. So they have a very robust team. They have a bunch of archivists and archaeologists and forensic people. It's, it's, it's no question the premier uh, forensic uh, laboratory uh, in the world. There's, there's no question about that. It's a very big operation. I think it has close to 120 people. And we were involved in it, uh, like I said, six, seven, eight years into uh, them standing up that group. So, like I said, we sent, we 
contributed to 52% uh, of those uh, missions. Uh, we had to be kind of a silent partner uh, because back in those days, uh, um, you know, commands have egos, and uh, those those commands wanted to make sure that they got all the credit for it. Uh, I don't think anybody here really cared, and we just liked doing the work. We got an enormous amount of experience uh, doing uh, forensic work uh, using um, archaeological techniques, really high-level archaeological techniques. So you kind of fast-forward. Um, and we had done uh, some bits and pieces of work. The Army, once they know you can do something, uh, tends to, to pick on you to do it in the future, even though uh, that was not uh, our, our central um, you know, mission uh, in the Army. Our, our central mission was curation and collections management, as you pointed out. And we branched out into a lot of other things because we had a very big staff here and, and still do. Um, and so then you get into 2003, and I was asked to go over uh, to Kuwait and uh, help uh, try to find and, and also train uh, individuals um, that were uh, Kuwaiti uh, scientists that had a rudimentary knowledge of, of forensics. So I, I helped put some of those teams together uh, in uh, 2003. And it was just at the time the, the war had started, so it was kind of a, a dangerous uh, time. We were in the southern part of Iraq, but uh, the war was definitely going on. And if I were to really kind of try to add all the dots together, you know, try to connect them all, I think that the Army people that I served with over there um, said, hey, this, this guy knows what he's doing. And uh, a year later, when uh, the president, President Bush, decided that uh, we were not uh, you know, going to send Saddam Hussein and Chemical Ali and uh, the Minister of Defense, you know, all these top 30 guys, we're not going to send them to The Hague, that they were going to be tried uh, by their own, their own courts. Um, they needed some forensic people. So I think those guys went, hey, this guy worked with Katie's before, called me up and asked me if I could put a team together. I said, sure, I could do that. And uh, that's kind of a, a long story of how we got involved. But the Kuwaiti mission originally was designed for what? It was to train uh, the Kuwaitis who, as you know, have uh, enormous uh, and inexhaustible resources. Um, a number of their people, about, I think, 685, uh, pretty, that's a pretty close number, uh, when Saddam, during the first Gulf War, uh, was leaving uh, Kuwait City, um, he just picked people here and there. If you were on the street, uh, he kind of uh, took these captives and took them up into Iraq. Uh, and they were all uh, murdered and uh, buried across mostly uh, southern Iraq. Uh, and the Kuwaitis feel you know, like the United States feels about the Vietnam um, people that we were going to uh, we're going to bring these people back no matter what it takes. We've got the money, uh, so they really needed someone to um, you know, to train uh, some of their personnel. They had no no real forensic training at all. So I, I started off helping them put a lab together, and then I, I put most of my time uh, into uh, helping them put together basic field techniques uh, of recovery using heavy equipment. So what, what element of the United States government initially got involved in this? Uh, the first people that called me up were the Department of Justice, which had the lead uh, of putting together this whole court system, this whole series of trials, uh, and also the training for all of the uh, 
uh, all the judges had to be trained, uh, all the Iraqi judges had to be trained on how to be judges again. Uh, the lawyers had to be trained on how to be lawyers again, uh, how to learn about the rules of evidence and on and on and on. All these guys, very smart guys, but uh, they all had degrees uh, from really good universities. But you have to you know, take your mind back and realize that during the, the 20 years that uh, Saddam was uh, um, you know, in power, that uh, that court system, all the results were phoned in by uh, him if a trial was a very big trial or uh, people that worked for him. So they, they never really practiced law, and they had all forgotten how to really practice law the way they were taught in school. I mean, it seems, um, you know, almost insane, but that's that's what I walked into. And, in fact, I... I taught probably for six or seven weeks when I first got there in uh, 2004 just on the basic rules of evidence and how you collect evidence and how you bag evidence and how it's entered uh, into the court system. Um, And it was like dealing with a bunch of kids. But as time went on, um, we actually took these individuals and and flew them out of the country uh, so that, frankly, they wouldn't get killed going from the green zone coming into where the United States uh, was. We actually took them to Sicily and to a couple places in uh, Italy and uh, even to London. Well, um, and and we trained them for for many many weeks at a time uh, in really kind of rigorous, you know, all day long training. Um, beautiful places to be trained in, but uh, I think uh, they didn't they didn't get the freedom they really wanted. I think they thought they were going to get to do a lot of touring. Uh, now, now, were these judges and these lawyers who you were able to mobilize, were they disaffected members of the Saddam regime, or were they uh, involved in any way, shape, or form in the legal system uh, at the time that the U.S. Uh, went into Iraq? I think they were mostly uh, disaffected members of the, of the regime. Uh, there were several people that uh, had, uh, you know, been Bath Party members. I mean, if... If you remember back, uh, it seems a very long time ago now, that really wasn't. Um, you know, we we kind of towed the line, uh, which I personally think was a mistake at the time because it meant that you ruled out almost all professional class people. I mean, uh, it was a lot like uh, Nazi Germany in World War II. I mean, you, you basically had to be a member of the Bath Party to um, keep your job. Uh, and I'll give you an example. My, my sister is a a big wig in the Department of Treasury, and she was sent over there to help put the whole monetary system back together. And uh, uh, Bremer, Mr. Bremer, decided that we were not going to use any of the top uh, bankers and all the way down to clerks uh, that were Bath Party members. And my my sister fought that very strongly because she said, well, then who's going to run the whole monetary system? You know, you don't just take guys off the street. So uh, the judges, I would say probably a fifth of them, the judges and lawyers, were uh, former Bath Party members. The rest were kind of disaffected uh, people. And they were disaffected because they were mostly younger men uh, who didn't uh, have full-time employment. So we had to take a lot of very young guys and train them up uh, over about a year and a half. And you were able to communicate with them freely at the time. You knew exactly which individuals to recruit and how to go about doing that. Yeah, I wasn't involved in that. The Department right. of Justice did that and the Department of State. Those were the two entities in our government that uh, kind of drove that train. I was just part of the forensic team that helped teach and mostly went out in the field and did the 
uh, forensic work. And so they they flew out of the country and they were trained and their mission was assigned to them. And you basically had to uh, orient them into what the objectives were and, and, and uh, f- uh, effectively mobilize their knowledge towards uh, towards doing this, this long-range project, correct? Right, that's correct. And, and I, I do want to say that there were some very, very brave guys in this because, you know, their, their, uh, their families were always... Uh, in jeopardy, uh, we had sure. to move actually a lot of their families out of the country because, as you recall, the militias were killing people left and right. And I really had a lot of respect, and still have a lot of respect for all the all the men that I, I worked with. They were really uh, tremendous guys. And when I looked at the guys that I first met in the classroom the first day in, in 2004, and the guys that then. Um, you know, we went into court with in uh, 2006. Uh, it was amazing to me uh, how professional, you know, they had learned everything, and they really were full professionals. So I think it's important for me to say, not as a commercial here, but, you know, when I hear people say, well, you know, we always knew what the result was going to be. Um, I, I don't think anybody that I work with, we ever knew what the result was going to be. We, we hope these uh, men and women were, were going to do the right thing and conduct themselves. But, you know, it was a real trial, and uh, nobody was helping them. Once it started, uh, they were on their own. Uh, it was their country, and people they were trying were their people. And we will come back and continue our discussion with uh, Dr. Sonny Trimble of the Army Corps of Engineers St. Louis District on the forensic excavations and uh, their relationship to the conviction of Saddam Hussein in 2008 after these words. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover. And have they got stories to tell? Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on Voice America Variety. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Shake it, 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 shake it
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schildenrein, and I have a very special guest with me. This is Dr. Michael Trimble of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, St. Louis District. Uh, Dr. Trimble was responsible for organizing the forensic excavations and the mass graves excavations in Iraq between 2003 and 2008 in conjunction with the Department of Justice's investigations of the uh, massacres. Uh, that were undertaken in the 1980s by the Hussein regime. Sonny, at this point, we sort of have laid out the backdrop to the uh, Department of Justice's investigations. You're now tasked with the responsibility of actually mobilizing a comprehensive and well-equipped team to actually boots on the ground, go into Iraq, and start of locating and then excavating the mass graves. How did you go about doing that? Well, it's a couple hours, but I'll try to pare it down here in a few minutes. Um, sure. it, was, it was difficult, but we were able to do it. We put the whole team together uh, in a little less than 60 days. And, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I've been in this field a long time, and that means we, we know just about everybody in the field. I had about six or seven people in my own office uh, that um, I could bring with me or use them uh, from a distance uh, in helping me. But the majority of the team, uh, we realized we were going to have to recruit and get under contract. So we had a, a big, huge, multimillion-dollar uh, contract that we could use. Um, and this, this covered everything from buying all the equipment uh, to hiring all the people uh, to flying out and, and arriving on the scene out in the middle of the desert. And so, uh, you know, through friends of friends of friends, if I didn't know the people um, I was uh, hiring or interviewing over the phone, I certainly didn't have enough time uh, to, uh, you know, bring people into St. Louis and uh, interview them uh, and as crazy and as loose as it sounds, um, we really were able to put together a very, very strong team. Uh, we vetted them a lot. We talked to them on the phone uh, many, many times, each person. Uh, we we put together you know, a series of professional digital photographers. Uh, we had a big forensic lab, so these people had to be board certified in forensics. Um, I'm an archaeologist, and, and I believe very strongly, mostly from our experience uh, in, in Vietnam, that the people that should be doing the excavation should not uh, be physical anthropologists, uh, which is done by a number of people around the world, uh, but they ought to be trained archaeologists that you get the best results that way. And then once the human remains are found, then you turn them over to forensic people who have much more training than an archaeologist does in terms of analyzing human remains and gunshot wounds and things of that nature. So, uh, And then finally, I'm a, I'm a big believer in uh, we had to get this done fast. It was in a very dangerous environment. 
you know, there's a war going on over there, and we were dropping in into the middle of the war. We really couldn't be on the ground more than two or three weeks, uh, or someone was really going to get hurt very badly. We were guarded all the time by 80 to 120 people. All our food was provided for us. So I'm a big believer in the way you get out of a very difficult place very quickly is you use heavy equipment. That's not done a lot by a lot of people in archaeology even today. I still don't get it, uh, but that's another whole show. So uh, we, um, I went out and hired a guy that uh, was very skilled uh, with a back uh, track hoe and backhoe, uh, and we uh, actually converted a, a track hoe so that it had a, a 42-inch blade on the top, and he could take off a centimeter of dirt at a time. So that allowed us to go straight down on these graves, not put people in the field in you know, 120 degrees heat where they'd just be passing out after a couple hours, then bring the people in once we were on top of the grave, then have people excavate uh, in a very fine way with hand tools. So that's so kind of how we did it. <laughs> what were the guidelines that you used to initially locate the graves? Did you use remote sensing? Did you use historic documentation or all accounts? How did you actually start to hone in and focus in on the graves' locations? There was, a, a, I guess, three main avenues we used. We had uh, all the satellite uh, imagery that um, we could get our hands on. It was completely at our disposal uh, from NGA, the National Geospatial uh, Agency. There, the group of people that you know, has all those satellites up there that you know can read um, license plates, and they actually really can read license plates. Um, that that data, as good as it as it was, uh, did not allow us to find that many. Uh, Graves. The the best data we had was a, a guy uh, named uh, Al Schmidt, who was a, a major at the time in the Marine Corps, uh, realized about on the third day of the invasion that a lot of people had been killed in Iraq, many more people than anybody uh, had, had ever uh, um, really understood. And so he got permission from his commander uh, to take a, a platoon of guys and go up the central part of Iraq, anywhere he needed to go, um, he was a law enforcement officer, so he knew how to interview people. And he found over 250 uh, potential graves, mostly through interview uh, process. A lot of them were not real graves, but a lot of them were. And then finally, um, um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, um, private, uh, you know, uh, non-governmental uh, groups uh, that had, uh, you know, done a lot of research and, uh, you know, looked into all the atrocities of Saddam Hussein. And uh, several of those groups uh, turned over all of their data on where people were shot and killed and buried over to the Justice Department. So those three groups of, of information allowed us to hone in on the uh, places that had the best a chance to have the best return on uh, getting undisturbed graves. Now, it didn't always happen for us, but it gave us the best chance in a, in a dangerous environment. You know, it wasn't like we could just do normal archaeology and kind of stroll out there and take our time. I mean, um, you were over there, uh, and, you know, you every, every place you go has to be in an armored car. There's a million people around you. You just don't get to walk around and stroll around. So uh, everything has to be tightly controlled because there are people out there that uh, do not want you alive looking into that kind of stuff. Right. 
And as we've discussed previously and, and, and having coordinating between ourselves on this project, the model that you adjust, adopted for doing this kind of work was the uh, North American Cultural Resource Management Model, correct? Absolutely was. Uh, in fact, uh, during the first uh, mission, I had uh, gone out and I had done, really kind of against my, my better judgment, um, I had gone out and recruited a bunch of uh, individuals that were really highly specialized, very well published, uh, but mostly university professors. I don't want to offend anybody by saying this, but what they were not good at was um, working as a team uh, because they were all important professors uh, at their individual universities, uh, and they all had... um, you know, they couldn't meet in the middle on any issue. They always had to win the, the conversation. And I'm a person that believes we all end up meeting in the middle. Um, so while we did that first mission and we did it pretty well, I realized that I was never going to sustain a team and or my own sanity, quite frankly, unless we went to the model that you described, which is a CRM model, which I think takes very, very smart people and it's what uh, I think you know. I describe as high speed, low drag. Uh, very smart people <laughs> know how to move fast uh, because, and we had to get perfect data. But in probably a fifth of the time, the professors uh, would have done it. And when we went to that model, in fact, you're one of the people that really encouraged me to uh, look at that. And it didn't take more than a sentence to uh, um, get me to do that. Uh, I completely uh, changed. Uh, my whole model on how we were going to go and do all the rest of the next two years with the work uh, after the first mission of uh, five or four or five months. Uh, I, I'm not a person, as you know, that uh, you know believes in sticking to my idea if the idea turns out to be a bad idea. You just, you know, you drop it and you get a better idea and you move on. And, and there, well, a lot of that was done. There was a lot of changing, and there was a lot of well thought out. Even though it was rapidly done, there was a lot of changing right. in mid-process because uh, we had to make those adjustments. And why don't you describe to to the listenership exactly how the situation worked in the field? There were the groups and how it was organized. There were the groups of archaeologists who actually went down and did the mass graves excavations, and then there was the lab. And what was the connection between those two, and how did you work out? that very smooth conveyor belt-like system that moved data from the field and into the lab for processing. Right. Um, I think, you know, that that first mission was a a real eye-opener for me, even though I had a lot of experience doing uh, uh, work in uh, Vietnam. You know, when you're working in Vietnam, you're only working on one or two bodies at a time. And here we were working on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bodies and many, many graves at a time, um, you know, depending on the area that we were in. And uh, typically what happens in these, you know, most mass grave work is done after a battle is over. There's not people shooting around you. And I realized we couldn't go up and down the road like we were doing that that first um, season in 2004. Because by the end of that season in 2004, uh, these IEDs, these improvised explosive devices, were going off and killing people in, in just huge, rapid numbers among the, the Army, and I realized we were next. We went up and down the same 17 kilometers twice a day, and, you know, it was just a matter of time till someone killed us. So uh, I developed a, a system where we would have the archaeologists flown into the site. We'd have everybody flown into the site. The site would be uh, set up uh, before we arrived so that the day we got there, we were working the next day. 
Uh, I went to the Department of State uh, and uh, to the Justice Department and argued you know, some of the biggest arguments I've ever had in my life that the only way we were going to get evidence for this uh, uh, trial and not get our own people killed, uh, which uh, I think I carried the argument because I was able to say to them, how are you going to... Uh, say to the American public, we got a bunch of civilians killed here digging up mass graves, and we could bring a helicopter in. So I had two helicopters that were devoted uh, to the project, uh, and that'll never happen again in my lifetime or probably anybody else's. Uh, Blackhawks are uh, um, precious uh, uh, helicopters, especially in that environment. So they would come in, as, as you recall, you were on one of those uh, projects. They would come in about every seven or eight days. We would still be digging the grave, and we developed a system where we would take out the bodies uh, that we had already excavated. They were in a, a chilled uh, container. We'd put them on the Blackhawk. We would fly them uh, back to the, uh, the lab that was on a, a major Army base. Uh, so it was a static environment and a calm environment, and people could work every day just like we'd get up and go to work today. And so we put together a model that I don't think anyone's ever used before, uh, where we would just keep working in the field nonstop and push the bodies out uh, at the same time. And so it became very, very efficient, and it, it kind of telescoped time and got us closer to putting together a very, very uh, perfect report uh, in a very short time period that the lawyers required because the trials were not going to stop for a bunch of archaeologists and forensic people who were still in the field. So we had to keep up with the trial, not the other way around. It was a real challenge, but we did it, and I think I, I would say to this day we, we developed, all of us developed some techniques that I'm sure most uh, forensic teams uh, still don't have in terms of imagery and things of that nature. It was a, it was a really great group to work with. And uh, I guess the really phenomenal thing was how many archaeologists were actually in the field doing the recovery and and uh, really procuring tremendous amounts of information, including clothing and artifacts and yeah, as sad and horrible as it was, baby bottles and pacifiers and, uh, again, uh, identification tags in many cases. And then all that material was taken to the central lab, and it was the, uh, the forensic people who actually sat at the lab stations and started processing the data. Uh, tell us a little bit about what they did. Right. We uh, broke the team up into the guys that did the excavation, so those were the archaeologists, and then they mapped the whole site. And then since I'm biased and I believe that archaeologists are better at putting uh, reports together than other elements in anthropology, I put the archaeologists as the senior editors of the uh, report. That bruised a couple people's feelings, but that was okay. Uh, so he had the group of archaeologists that went out and did their thing. They were like an airborne unit. They would go out hit the ground, do the excavation, in uh, three to three and a half weeks, come home, uh, start writing up their stuff. The, the bodies would be put in a chilled uh, area, in a chiller. Uh, when we started processing the bodies, the bodies would go out into a tent. Uh, the human remains would be separated from all the personal effects, the clothing, the jewelry, things of that nature. All of that material, which is normally called evidence uh, in a... In a, you know, in, a, in a law enforcement environment, um, we called it uh, cultural property. Right. Uh, uh, so all of the evidence, you know, clothing, um, personal effects, would go to another tent uh, where it was mostly analyzed, mostly by um, 
cultural anthropologists. Uh, those people were not allowed to talk, uh, so, and, the, and the human remains, the bones, uh, would go to the uh, forensic tent. So the forensic people were not allowed to talk to the people that uh, looked at the, uh, at the uh, clothing and personal effects, the idea being that you know, if you have a piece of clothing and it's got eight holes in it, uh, you say, okay, that person was shot eight times. Well, theoretically, that person was shot eight times, but then the guys in the other tent are uh, only finding seven wounds. You don't want them. It's human nature to come up with the same number. Uh, and there's reasons why those two numbers don't uh, don't go together. So it, it, it's a common technique that's used in forensics. It's not like we invented that. But we had all these, spe- and then we even had uh, we had uh, a whole tent uh, devoted to imagery. Uh, one area controlled all the images and all the cameras and taught everybody how to take all the pictures in a standardized fashion. Uh, which um, is a system that we put together, and I, I would never use another system from now on. We even had a bunch of archivists that when we found uh, people's um, uh, IDs on them, occasionally IDs, women had sewn IDs into their, their clothing. Uh, those IDs were cleaned up and then turned over to the FBI and the Justice Department uh, so we could run down and see if those people were still alive. Um, it was In the beginning, it was thought, oh, those those IDs belonged to people that were dead uh, in the ground. But, in fact, we found out that a number of the IDs, you know, sometimes up to 5% of them were people that had gotten away. They were just the children of the of mother that had kept the IDs. So we had all these specialists that all worked on their little thing to a common purpose, and each person wrote a chapter on what they were doing, and then that chapter was sent over to the archaeologist to put together. Then it was, you know, made a... A report, just like a CRM report, is put together in a very efficient fashion, and it was shipped off uh, to the um, uh, Department of Justice and the, and the Iraqis. Really, the Iraqis were the, the first customer the Department of Justice got a courtesy copy. And on that note, we're going to go to break again, and we will be back with our third and final segment of this intriguing discussion on forensic archaeology and the Saddam Hussein trial right after these words. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Want the best life has to offer for you, your family, and friends? There are a number of community-based programs and resources available to individuals for low cost or no cost. No need surfing the net or spending hours on the phone. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with hosts Melissa Jenkins-Simon and Diane Stafford and get the tools to success. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Racism. Healing. Oneness of humankind. It is time to join millions of people all over the world who openly talk about racial healing. Some of us are not sure how to tread when discussing race and culture. Until now. Tune in to A Safe Place to Talk About Race with host Sharon E. Davis. Engage with experts and notables. Have a question but are not sure how to ask it? 
Test it out with our show. It's a safe harbor to explore views and situations that we face every day. A Safe Place to Talk About Race airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and is the co-founder of BR Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm back with my very special guest and good friend, uh, Dr. Michael Trimble, the uh, chief archaeologist for the St. Louis Army Corps of Engineers District, and the gentleman who is largely responsible for initiating the forensic archaeological investigations in Iraq that resulted in the conviction of Saddam Hussein between 2003 and 2008. Uh, Sonny, let us go back, if we can, into the sequence of events, uh, specifically uh, what particular populations were being excavated and in what order. I believe you began a little bit in the northern part of the country and then you started to move south. Why don't you tell us about the individual campaigns over the course of those sure. five years? Yeah, there were uh, two campaigns. One was called the Anfall Campaign, uh, and it started in uh, 1988 and uh, ended in 1989. It was just a little over uh, a year uh, in in length. And uh, the point of that was uh, Saddam Hussein was very upset with uh, how the Kurds up north, uh, who have always been um, uh, kind of their own people and, uh, you know, pretty much don't listen to anybody, um, a very interesting group of people. Um, he was very upset with them uh, for uh, assisting uh, the Iranians uh, during uh, the war between Iran and Iraq in, in the early 80s, and he had decided that um, he just had had enough of them, and he was going to eliminate all of them, I mean all of them. So the Anfal campaign was about systematically going up uh, going into the small villages, telling everybody that they were going to uh, pack up and move them down into the southern part of Iraq and take your time. And it was really kind of a, a masterful job on his part because uh, uh, he actually convinced people that uh, he wasn't going to kill them. He was just going to move them. Kind of Relocation. 
Yeah, he was going to relocate them, and you know, he he used a lot of tricks of the trade that uh, Hitler used. You know, saying, "Hey, take your time, pack this stuff up." Uh, he actually put them on very nice buses, and then he would drive them out uh, into the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, where um, graves uh, had been. Uh, um, uh, excavated by heavy equipment, and then he would march them down into these linear trenches and uh, and shoot them with uh, small arms, um, you know, mostly women and children. Uh, the other campaign uh, was called the Intifada, uh, so that several other names, but that's the, the main one. And that campaign uh, uh, was against the Shia, you know, the dominant uh, ethnic group uh, in, uh, uh, in Iraq, um, and Saddam Hussein, as we all know, uh, his group of people were the Sunni. They were a very small group of people who held power for quite a while. And he was very upset that the Shia, at the end of the first Gulf War, uh, when uh, President Bush uh, said, hey, everybody rise up and overthrow this guy, well, they took him in his work. And uh, they started doing that, even though they had very few weapons. Uh, and uh, so he That's decided, Bush 1. That's yeah, Bush, Bush 1. Right. So he decided... Uh, I'm going to put a pounding on these guys. It was a, it was a real, real bad moment, I think, for American foreign policy because uh, uh, the the peace treaty we had uh, signed, uh, you know, we just went right across the border, and and that was that. So he killed a number of Shia. So we were excavating uh, graves uh, from uh, both those campaigns, um, purely from a, a legal standpoint, so that we could try these guys uh, with as much evidence as possible. Uh, to put them away forever, or, you know, really they were asking for the death sentence on a number of these individuals. And so uh, so that was, so you started out with the Anfal campaign, then you went to the Intifada, and the Intifada really was, was the, the bigger thrust of, of the action over the course of the last few years, correct? I mean, there were a couple of separate sub-campaigns uh, or uh, excavations that, that were undertaken. Tell us a little bit about those. About those. What the, uh, the the final projects that we yeah, did? Yeah, we, yeah. We, the ones we started the out at a, at a project that uh, you worked on. It was a, a place called Mutana, and um, I say it when people ask me about it. When I, I feel like talking about it, I mean it was a it's an unbelievable place. It was a former lake bed, which uh, you pointed out to me, which I already knew. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, um, and uh, what was interesting about it was that uh, it was something if, you know, I've said it many times, if Spielberg was making a movie of this uh, horrible campaign, this was the place he would, he would film. You had this lake bed that was surrounded on three sides by the, the topography, so the, the sand dunes went up a little. So it wasn't until you got really on top of this lake bed, you couldn't see what was going on from a distance uh, um, so they always used the ge- geography to um, camouflage uh, what they were doing. Uh, and, even to struct- they the and to structure their logistics. Right, and to structure their logistics, absolutely. So he, uh, I think we found, uh, I think, 10 graves, uh, as I recall. Um, yeah. And, and you uh, you mapped uh, all of those. Uh, we, we brought you in to, to work on that and uh, to uh, document how the whole grave process worked, uh, which was... Uh, so important to our work, uh, but yeah, there are ten full graves there, and uh, we excavated two of them, and we found so many people. Uh, we, we excavated two, uh, one against my my best wishes, but the 
uh, the, the lawyers at the time were very interested in numbers. It was kind of reminded me of the Vietnam War where they wanted to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and I was able to convince them finally at that, that site that if the more people we kept excavating, the longer it takes to process individuals for a forensic standpoint uh, to write a report so we can take people to trial. So we uncovered two graves. Uh, we documented those two graves. We emptied one grave to, to the forensics on that, and then we covered up the initial grave. But we examined all the rest of the graves and uh, dug into them and documented and photographed that there were actually people in there and then covered them up so that human rights people can come back later on and hopefully return uh, their dead uh, back to the communities that they came from. Sonny, I'd like to jump fast forward a little bit at this point because we are starting to reach the closing end of the program. Talk to us really about the transition from the recovery of the information, the processing of the information, and basically the integration of that information into a prosecutorial case that resulted in the conviction of Saddam Hussein and, and your particular role in providing that evidence, both as a spokesman for the project and as the actual face of the prosecution when you provided the uh, documentation in the courtroom. Okay. Well, the the plan from the beginning was we were going to sample by excavating, as we've talked about here, X number of graves uh, that would allow us to uh, connect uh, X number of the top people in the regime uh, to these uh, crimes against humanity. Um, and, and we did that. We did that from a technical standpoint really well. We wrote the reports. They were really first-rate reports. We had all kinds of uh, great imagery associated with them, so there's no doubt in anybody's mind uh, how these uh, young uh, women and young children were killed uh, pretty uh, in, a, in a pretty destructive and uh, brutal way. Uh, and in the beginning, uh, everyone said to me, well, you know, you're going to you're going to um, testify on this, and you have to take yourself back. This is 2004. The war was just a year old. And I said at the time, uh, you know, all kinds of things were happening in this country, and uh, I said, you know, I'm not so wild about that. Uh, I'm not so sure I want to have my family and, uh, you know, my name bandied about and in the press. So we'll see about that. So I really had no intention, and uh, they were really smart about it. They didn't push me on it. And uh, as time went on, uh, I realized, uh, and I think the whole team realized, that if if we left the information to them to just uh, put out there, that it would probably be misused, uh, in, not in the sense of misuse, that's really not the right term, we would not be able to get our story across that the world could see about how this happened. So within the last eight or nine months, I agreed to do uh, the trial and participate in the trial. And in that court system, you get to make an opening statement. The prosecutor allows, is allowed to bring in any number of uh, subject matter experts, and they decided we're going to use one. It's going to be me, and we're going to give a presentation. So we spent uh, two or three months putting a presentation together, and I've been thinking about this almost three years. And I decided we were going to use PowerPoint, which almost no one had ever seen in Iraq before, and we were going to use all the bells and whistles in PowerPoint. And we were going to show these big images on this huge wall uh, of all these small children being killed. Uh, so we were allowed to pick a, a small sample of individuals, and we, we sampled the age groups, and we showed 17 people. And we showed them from the way they were dressed when they went into the grave to the way they looked 
when we found them to all the horrible uh, shots on their bodies. And um, so when I testified in court with Saddam about 12 or 13 feet away and Kemakali and all these guys uh, in that little dock that they stood in, um, I probably uh, gave that presentation. It probably took me almost five and a half hours to give that presentation before I was cross-examined. So it was an enormous amount of time, and it went fast. I, I had no idea I was talking. never thought I could talk for five hours straight, but um, I did. And, uh, and the judges so the started pr- crying about halfway through, and that's when I knew that right. we were successful. So the prosecutorial uh, testimony lasted for that long, and then how long was the cross-examination? Cross-examination was only about an hour, and, and the mistake that Chemical Ali and Saddam Hussein and the Minister of Defense and most of the other guys made, though mostly I was berated by uh, Saddam Hussein and Chemical Ali, was instead of letting their lawyers cross-examine me, which would have been a lot smarter thing to do, uh, those guys still believed they were the smartest people in Iraq, and so they got up and berated me and asked me these really silly and ignorant questions, quite frankly, and it allowed me to answer their questions very easily. Uh, you know, Saddam Hussein, I recall, one of the things I remember him saying to me, it's an old court trick. He wanted to know on the third grave we worked on, how far was it from the main highway? And who knows? I think it was probably seven kilometers. But, you, you know, if you say, I'm not quite sure, I think it was seven kilometers, then then what the person does is says, well, if you're not sure about that, how are you sure about any of the other evidence? And right. So, um, I, I had to answer him that you've had the report for six months. Look it up. It's on Chapter 16. And that those kinds of answers made him crazy. And uh, uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. How did, did you see in his face any expressions of either remorse or glee or any possibly even sadistic expressions or was he just impassive and was he shocked by what he had seen i think he was really shocked i i kept glancing at him from out of my left eye when i was giving the presentation i tried not to look at them uh when i was giving the presentation but about Five minutes into it, I, I looked over a couple times, and all of those men, they had a complete look of shock on their face, and their eyes were as, as big as pies. I mean, they had never seen uh, PowerPoint before and, and how, um, you know, it's like looking at something from Mars. And they were just transfixed at the wall, but they, they had a shocked look on their face, like, oh, my God, people are seeing this stuff. And they were, remember, these are individuals that you know, gave orders to kill people and never had to see the results of those orders. And I think being confronted with it really shocked them. Having said that, I thought he was a pretty spent guy once he got up. Even when he was screaming and yelling, he wasn't a person that frightened me. Chemical Ali uh, scared the heck out of me. I mean, you know, he's he's a cold-blooded murderer. He's the one that, you know, carried out Anfall for his um, um, brother-in-law. And, right. Uh, he was a he was a definitely a, a frightening guy. I mean, I would not want to be in a room alone with him. <laughs> right. But was it more shock that they got caught, or shock that this is what they have, this is what their efforts produced? I mean, that's the question I ha- I would have. I would I would guess that it was shock at this is what our efforts produced. Right. They got caught. Yeah. They. You know. Uh, Although I'm sure they were amazed by that too, that they got caught and uh, you know, right? One of their there was yeah, one of their evidence. 
Yeah, one of their biggest, uh, both of their biggest arguments were that these people were kind of camp followers, like you had camp followers during the Revolutionary War and the Civil War in this country, and that, you know, these people were smuggling bullets and weapons to the front, and they just, it was too bad they got caught, and they got caught in the middle of everything, and as our prosecutor, you know, for the government pointed out, these are five- and six-year-old kids and two-year-old kids. I mean, how could these people possibly be carrying weapons and ammunition to the front, and it's not the front. You've got a whole trench full of these people dead. Um, they kept coming back to that, saying they were camp followers and, and, and actively engaged in combat, which it was just, you know, uh, it, magical thinking at best. <laughs> right, of course. And, and, and so, okay, so, and I guess my question as we wrap this up is where do we go from here? What kind of a tool is archaeology and will archaeology be in, in this entire forensic archaeological approach going forward? Because as we all know, mass murder is not, uh, has not seen its end and, and, uh, we obviously still have a lot of work to do in this connection. Uh, where do you see this project falling out as sort of a guideline for future work and, and, and for future efforts? Well, I, I don't say this because, you know, I, I ran the project. I say it because, the, you know, we had some great people, as you know, involved in this, really, really smart people across the board. I, I think it's a real model for how you, you run a, a project in the future with all the technology. Uh, the problem is is that, you know, most nation states uh, will not put up the money, even our own country will not put up uh, the money, which is not that substantial to uh, to use this technology. Um, and, and those are always policy and, and political decisions. Um, so I'm... I really thought that we would be doing a lot of this after I came back. I mean, there's no question in my mind on a much smaller scale. And yeah. I must say that, uh, you know, we still all, we all know those of us involved and those who read, have read some of the, the work that we've done know that we really have, uh, the best mousetrap out there right now. I mean, there's no question this, this system beats any other national system out there. You know, the French have a system, the Germans have a system. We really, you know, as a country, develop this technology very well, but someone has to pay the cost, and uh, it's not inexpensive. I don't think it's overly expensive, but there just seems to be an unwillingness uh, from a policy standpoint to uh, use it, and that's that's where we're just we're just in the mix with everybody else. So I would love to do it. Uh, um, I know the people. You know, so all I do is hear from people saying, "Hey, when are we going out next?" But hard to say. Hard to say. Yeah. And on that note, I think we're going to have our, end our discussion on forensic archaeology with Dr. Sonny Trimble, who was basically the architect of the uh, forensic archaeological excavations of the mass graves in Iraq between 2003 and 2008. I want to thank Sonny Trimble, and I want to uh, tell you that we will be back again next week with another program. And until then, good evening, and we will see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.